0: Um, Before we begin, let's pray. Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for the truth of that catechism today, that you are the only redeemer, that no matter where we go, we will always be found wanting, and yet when we come before you, we are given more than we could ever need. I want to thank you again for all the mothers here, Lord, and for the, the blessing and the joy that they give their families. Um, I want to pray for today's message, God, that you would work through my nerves and that you would just pour out the joy that I just feel to be here today amongst my family, whom I love dearly. Thank you so much for this body. Bring forth prophecy today in such a way where you are speaking to your bride. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today we begin our final sermon series in 1 Corinthians. And we've entitled it the Glocal Church. The term Glocal was coined in the 1980s uh, to describe a phenomenon happening in world entities, especially businesses. Um, As you can gather from the sound of the word, it describes an entity that bears both global qualities as well as local qualities. The most popular example of this, if you just Google it or... I'll be honest. I also looked on Wikipedia. I know it's not the most credible thing, but the most popular example of this is the McDonald's menu. I don't know if you know this, but uh, the McDonald's that we have here—if you go to McDonald's—is going to be different than if you go to like uh, the Southwest, where they have bur- much more burgers with with guacamole on it and uh, peppers available. And helpful tip: if you're in Hawaii around breakfast, go to McDonald's because you can get spam and eggs. Um, Another example is the Oreo cookie. There are no less than three recipes for the Oreo cookie, and I'm talking specifically about the cookie on the outside because you don't mess with the filling. It's perfect. Um, There's the, the regular original American recipe, but there's also a version that they've written just for India because in India the test groups complained that the cookie was too bitter, so they made it extra sweet, if you can imagine, an even sweeter Oreo. And then in China, their uh, complaints about the American recipe of the Oreo is that it was too sweet, so they had to back it down and make it more bitter, so no less than three. Uh, the idea is that there is an entity, or in this particular series specifically, the church exists on a global scale, but there are small and appropriate um, variations specific to local places. It's made specific to that particular culture. We see in chapter 16 of First Corinthians, Corinthians that amongst the many ways that the church is like an Oreo cookie, it is global. There's definitely other ways. Sweet brings people joy, and with frequency, it is liable to make one grow. Today's sermon, part one of this three-part series, focuses on the fact that the church is global. In our study today, you'll see that the church is global in the sense that it bands together in a familial love that transcends cultural boundaries. The church, we'll read in 1 Corinthians 16, gathers together to collect uh, a relief for distant family in a, in a different church. We also see that it's global in the sense that it involves many uh, moving parts, players that are engaged in this interplay that span multiple countries, multiple continents, different language groups, different cultures. The interplay is also global. So the church is global. As a precursor of our sermon, I'd like to you to read. I'd like to read to you the Great Commission as it's accounted in the Book of Mark. Mark sixteen fifteen through eighteen is Jesus, the risen Jesus, talking to his disciples. And he says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents and drink. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Side note, don't pick up snakes and don't drink poison. Um, we don't have time to talk about that, but just don't do it. Moving on. Okay, we said don't drink poison. Here we are. Um, now to, prefer, to prepare you for what we're about to do together in first Corinthians sixteen I have to give you um, just to prove understand that we're going to get into really really deep narrative and I really don't want to confuse you guys but it's this farewell address in first Corinthians 16 it makes references to all these things that are going on in paul's ministerial life it makes mentions of ministries that are happening outside of paul's mission trip and it uh, it becomes A greater dimension of meaning when we know the narrative that's involved with that so I'm going to do the very best I can to not be confusing Uh, I'm going to try to be as brief by still accomplishing the point but if if you're one who takes notes it'd be really great to take down scriptural references and we're just going to have a really cool time going through the narrative Um, You can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16 if you haven't done that yet. If you'd like to lay a bookmark around Acts 18 to 21, you can do that as well. We're not going to read all of that, but we're going to refer to it. And you might enjoy reading through 18 through 21 after the sermon when you go home or later on in the week. Let us read the passage. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to, um, to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now uh, see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. The word of the Lord. A lot of just conversational uh, housekeeping. In 1 Corinthians 16, this we're, we're not seeing heavy doctrine like we've been seeing through the entire book of First Corinthians. We're not seeing that familiar rebuke that he's been giving them through the entire book. It's kind of just conversational. And so it, it will take a little bit of work to dig in to, to see what this portion of scripture has to offer. Uh, remember that God intentionally included this in his word for all of eternity. So there's something to be gathered from here. Verses 1 through 4 in chapter 16 concern a collection that Paul was gathering for the church in Jerusalem. This section bears a lot of helpful tips that we can apply towards what we call tithing, uh, which is giving money to the church, but that's actually not practically what Paul's discussing here. This is a separate collection. It's better understood to be a fundraising event. It's kind of like the the gift drive we do to Lowell Every winter, you know, during the Christmas time, it's a collection for a particular people group with an intention, but it's separate of our regular tithing and giving. So uh, think about Paul spearheading this fundraising event. So why is he doing that? Let's break that question down in two parts. Why is Paul fundraising and why is he fundraising for Jerusalem? This is verses one through four. Why is Paul fundraising? I know Paul is an evangelist. I know of him as a missionary, as a teacher, as an apostle. But I oftentimes forget that he had an official role as, for lack of a less, you know, clerical-sounding word, he had a role as a fundraiser. It was an office that he occupied as an apostle. In Galatians 1 and 2, we get a brief biography uh, when Paul is giving this anecdote to defend the validity of him being an apostle. Remember, the Galatians were questioning whether or not he had authority to be an apostle. And we get this small portion where he talks about having gone to Jerusalem and meeting three people there, Peter, the apostle John, and James, the brother of Jesus. And he says that they appear to be pillars of the church. So he goes to them, and they give Paul and Barnabas, who was with Paul at the time, an official commendation. And that official commendation was, you are an apostle to the Gentiles. They have this discussion and they decide, all right, Peter, James, and John, we're going to stay here. We feel a calling to be, an apo- to be apostles to the Jewish people, but we recognize you as the, as the official headquarters of the church in that day. We give you an official recognition and commendation as an apostle to the Gentiles. But it came with a caveat when Peter said, but don't forget the poor. And Paul puts a little note down under there where he says, that was the very thing that I wanted to do. So there, there's this official commendation. You're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but don't forget the poor. And specifically, the implication there is, don't forget the poor in Jerusalem. Um, why Jerusalem? We do see in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that that's where this collection is going. It's going to Jerusalem but why? The clearest reason is that Jerusalem suffered a severe famine, a severe famine in around A.D. 45. Now, Paul's writing 1 Corinthians in A.D. 55-57, so this is a long time after the beginning of the famine, so that helps us to understand the severity of how much destitution was, was wrought by this famine. Interesting fact is that the church actually knew about the famine before it hit because there was a prophecy that foretold it, and you can read about that in Acts 11. Actually, I'll read that to you guys. Acts eleven twenty-seven through 28 says, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul." So when this family hit in AD 45, Paul is, again, writing about 10 years later. You see, let me kind of slow down with all the facts. It's true that Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That was his ministerial heart. But he was never able to escape the fact that he loved his people his own people were the Jewish people, the Jewish people who were still in the law. And he cared about Jewish people who had not recognized Jesus as the Messiah so much that later on in Scripture he said, I would be willing to take eternal judgment if that meant my people would be saved. So when, when Peter, James, and John say, Paul, you can go to the Gentiles, but gather some money for the Jewish people, it was, uh, it was a heart-calling for Paul as well. He had a passion to do that. Even in this, this first verse that we're talking about here, we're seeing a cultural interplay, an example of this global aspect of the church where you have Paul, who is a Jewish man by, by birth, and he's being called out of his people to preach to the people that his people hates. And yet when he goes there and does the work... He acts as this link between Jew and Gentile. Okay. Um, the term now concerning, that's, in, that's still in verse 1. When Paul says now concerning, it means that he's answering a specific question that the Corinthians had posed to him in a letter that he received. So this beginning of the section where he's saying now concerning, we can gather that the, fr- that the Corinthians had already asked Paul when they know that they're going to participate in this offering they were going to ask they're asking Paul how practically are we going to gather up this collection for Jerusalem so Paul has this very standard system of collection that he's doing through Galatia and he's going to apply it here in the region of Achaia where Corinth is and it's verse two on the first day of every week each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. The system is as follows. Every individual. So every person in the church is going to participate in this. It's not, it's not the church that is going to partition out a sum from the church's funds. It's not this collective donation in the name of the church of Corinth. This is something that every single person is personally going to participate in and do they're going to put aside a portion it's an intentional amount it's not it's not an impulsive give like oh I got a five on me so I'll contribute five bucks there is supposed to be an intention behind it they're supposed to set aside a portion and then Paul says as he may prosper which means for those who are having an abounding financial time where they're they're very comfortable monetarily they should give a very big and generous gift, a substantial gift, as he may prosper. However, uh, a small, meager gift would be acceptable from somebody who the church knows is having financially a more of a difficult time. So it's proportionate. And they're going to turn in their contributions, their individual contributions, every week when the church meets at a service kind of like this. And he wants them to follow this so that way, the offering will gather up, and Paul doesn't have to take a big collection when he gets there. There's a few reasons why he wants to do that. One, it's terribly kind to the Corinthians. He's not going to show up one Sunday and say, all right, you know, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are having a really hard time. I need to take $40,000. We need to hit that before I leave. So everybody start giving. We need to get up to $40,000 to relieve the church and go. Like, that would be really harsh, a huge burden on the Corinthians. So, He's not asking that of them, just a, a reasonable amount once every week and an eventually over time it'll grow. And for that reason is why it's beneficial to the Jerusalem Church. Everybody in Corinth is just giving a little bit amount of a little amount, but over time that's going to accrue and it's going to be a huge blessing for the church in Jerusalem. It's also convenient for Paul because when he's in Corinth, he's going to want to do the work of a pastor. So he doesn't want to take a collection when he gets there. Yes, he's a fundraiser, but he's also a pastor. He loves this church, and this church has some issues. We'll see more and more as we go through this uh, scripture that Paul has a heart to sit and have a personal time of growth and ministry to the church in Corinth that he could see them improve. He doesn't want his, his main mission when he's there to collect money. Verse 3, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Whose letter? It's actually not clear. It's not sure if he's saying, you guys as a church commend some people by letter, and I'm going to take, I'm going to have them carry the gift to Jerusalem, or, and it's also not clear if Paul says, you pick some people, and I'll write a letter, and they'll go to Jerusalem, but the idea is this. When Paul goes to Corinth, the church is going to gather some representatives. They're going to delegate representatives who are going to work like ambassadors, and they're going to bear the gifts to Jerusalem. So Paul's not going to bring it himself. This is a beautiful example of brotherhood. And imagine Jerusalem, they're, they're struggling for over a decade as a result from this famine. And actually, Jerusalem was not really a blessing influential city even before the famine. So they're they're starving, they're having a really hard time, and then off in the distance they see these men that they've never met before. All coming together and they have a monetary gift to offer Jerusalem and they're all bearing letters that say from your family in Corinth, from your family in Thessalonica. Paul's come up with this this system that is going to encourage the people in Jerusalem to remember, hey, you have cellular brothers all over the place, and they're standing with you, and they're gathering this for you, and they care for you, and here they are, these are their faces. So he's gathering ambassadors. This is really important to Paul, this way that he's planned on doing this. Uh, Verse 4 clarifies that. It says, if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So there's no, or maybe I'll go instead of those guys. There's no, if I can make time to go to Jerusalem, then I won't trouble your people, I'll just carry it. This is Paul's plan. He is the dispensable one in the plan, not these ambassadors. These I- ambassadors are plan A. He's saying, these guys are going to go, maybe I'll go. But if I go, I'm going with them. That's not going f- to fall by the wayside. That's the plan. All right, so that uh, verses 1 through 4 marks the end of the discussion of this uh, gift to Jerusalem. If you're more interested in that, you could read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and Romans 15. But verses 5 through 7 is a different section. Verses 5 through 7 are Paul's travel plans. It can seem very bleak and uninteresting. Verses 5 through 7 say, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter with you so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. In order for these verses to not be too abstract, I'm going to just talk some basic geography with you. Um, I was thinking of putting it up on the board, but whatever. Um, The world around the Mediterranean Sea at this time is organized by regions. Okay, and um, Corinth is a city, and it's located in the region that's called Achaia. It's on the, the western side of the Aegean Sea. And just north of the region of Achaia is a region called Macedonia. And it includes the, includes the city of Berea, the city of Thessalonica, um, and uh, it also includes Philippi. And so Paul's saying, I've got some business. I'm planning on going to the region of Macedonia, and since I'm going to be in the general region, I'll just pop down while I'm there because I'm wanting to spend some time with you guys. And he says, perhaps I will even spend the winter with you. That word perhaps is not maybe. It's like, it's He's. It's more like he's saying, it's looking like I'm going to spend the winter with you. And uh, we see that, Hang on. I'm going to skip that. Let's not distract. We see that Paul would appreciate that the churches would help him on whatever his next journey is. We see that in in verse 6. He says, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. He, He asks that they help equip him. Give him some financial support. Give him equipment. Give him resources that he needs to go. And he says, wherever I may go next. He doesn't know where he's planning on going next. Spoiler alert, he goes back to Macedonia if you're interested. Yeah, I don't think you are, but. Um, I love verse 7. Verse 7 is a pastor's heart. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Oh, man, the Corinthian church, guys, is a mess. They are harsh. They're austere. They're disrespectful and rebellious against Paul They hurt each other. They hurt their poor. I wouldn't be surprised if I was a missionary to Corinth that I would never want to spend time over there again. I'd be happy to be big brother, send a rebuke letter saying, you guys follow these rules, get your act together. But Paul's not like that. Paul sees the way that the church is falling apart and how they have so many things of immaturity and so many things of wickedness that it doesn't push him away. It makes him want to go there and deal it with, him, deal with it himself. He doesn't just want to pass through and say, hey guys, how you doing? Keep collecting that money. I'm going to the next thing. He's saying, fortunately, around the time I'm going to be in Macedonia, it's going to finish up around wintertime. So there's that three months of harsh weather where I'm not going to want to travel, which is good because I want a big chunk of time with you in Corinth. So I'm going to get there by winter and I'm going to stay there. And uh, it's it's what he wants to do because he wants to pastor over his this church. And then I like that he says, if the Lord permits, he lays out all these plans and he's got this sort of James four perspective that the plans of, of man are always subject to the will of God. I love that one when, when you're talking to people and they and they give you their plan. And they're like, I'm going to go to the grocery store tomorrow if the Lord permits. And it's just like, oh, you always have that perspective. That's dope. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, next section. Verses 8 and 9. We're going to get into super narrative pretty soon. but it, This is just two verses, but the implications are really, really thick. So verses 8 and 9. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. It is great. I love those two verses because it is a it's a very blasé way of Paul to describe what's going on in Ephesus. So he's writing this letter from Ephesus. It's about springtime. He plans on staying there until late spring. By this point, he's been in Ephesus over 2 years. By the time he leaves, he's going to hit the 3 year marker. Okay, so He's saying, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. A wide door open for ministry. That is, that is so accurate. Because, so Paul gets to Ephesus around AD 52. And when he gets there, there's roughly about 12 dudes who are really zealous for Yahweh. They love the one true God, and they're in Ephesus. So they're n- remember, they're not in Judea anymore. They're in Asia Minor. That region's called Asia Minor. This is not a place where people are seeking to hear about Yahweh, but they, he gets there, and there are these 12 dudes who are zealous for the one true God, and he finds out that they're apostles, or excuse me, they're disciples of John the Baptist. So they have accurate theology up to a certain point, but they've not yet been brought abreast to the fulfillment of John's ministry. Remember, John's ministry is all about preparing people for the coming Messiah. So John was zealous and great, and Jesus said that he's the greatest man to be born. He had a really wonderful ministry. And you can imagine these roughly 12 guys in Asia Minor are saying, guys, just like John the Baptist told us, turn and repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is coming we are to prepare a way, make the path straight. And they're all on fire. And Paul says, hey, guys, come here. The king came about 20 years ago. Let me tell you about it. And so he, he, he tells them about it, and they're well-trained. They're disciples of John the Baptist. That dude is, was awesome. So they're well-trained. It doesn't take very much for Paul to explain that Jesus was the coming Messiah that scriptures were talking about, that John was preparing for, and boom, they get baptized, and they get baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. And so so Paul stays in Ephesus to develop the the work of these 12 ministers who are there, roughly 12. 12. And he, he does what he does in every city, which is he first goes to the synagogue. Paul, even as the apostle to the Gentiles, is always serving his people, giving them a, an opportunity to, uh, to hear the good word. So he goes to the synagogue, and when he gets there, he's talking about Jesus, and they kick him out pretty quick. Their patience is actually already worn thin, because some dude was already in there before Paul, preaching jesus and their patience is running out we'll get to that in a second um so he gets kicked out uh he's no longer preaching to the to the jewish people and he rents a big hall a theater and a college and he starts preaching the gospel to the gentiles and um there all sorts of sensational miracles start happening through paul in ephesus remember he says a wide door open for work um cloth fabric that touches Paul's skin ends up developing healing qualities like they they cut a snip off of his of his t-shirt and go press it against some sick person and that person gets healed it's crazy and so um everybody's hearing about this guy Paul including these this weird ragtag itinerant group of Jewish exorcists their job is to cast out demons in the name of Yahweh and so they're like, hey, uh, apparently this guy Paul is doing some stuff. So they, they approach some demoniac and they say, in the name of that guy that Paul talks about, Jesus Christ, come out. And the demoniac answers them. He's like, yeah, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And they're unable to cast out the demon. So he rises up, he beats them up, he strips them down, and these itinerant exorcists run out of the house naked, beaten, and afraid. That sounds weird but that raises even further buzz about Paul's ministry and a bunch of more people end up getting saved. Um, And then uh, a bunch of sorcerers and occultic people start throwing all their magic books on a heap in the middle of the city square and they set it on fire and fortunes and fortunes of mystic art books are destroyed because people are are coming to know Jesus. It's definitely a wide door of effective work. Uh, this is in Acts 19, and Acts 19 21 says, after these events, Paul resolves in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, and we know why, right? He's, he's gathering this collection. He's going to go in Macedonia through Achaia, where Corinth is, and then to Jerusalem with this gift. We've, we've talked about that. Okay, so we have the Jews who'd kicked him out of the synagogue. They hated Paul. And so did the seller of idols because so many people were turning away from idolatry that the, the economy of making idols and the sale of them was crashing. And so this big riot breaks out. And uh, for, for hours, people are just shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And it's this huge, crazy riot. And so, yeah. Many adversaries did rise up in Ephesus. Verses 8 and 9 imply and refer to all of those things. We have further pictures of this global truth, right? We got this Jewish guy. He comes, and there's all all these disciples of this other Jewish guy in Asia Minor. Paul's preaching to the Jewish people. They don't accept it, so he goes to these Gentiles. They accept Jesus, and all sorts of crazy stuff happens in this city called Ephesus, where a riot breaks out because too many people are converting to Jesus. The gospel is breaking down borders and spanning all over the world. Okay, uh, really quickly, I swear, Acts 20 verses 1 through 5. After the uproar ceased, that's the riot of the Diana, the Ephesians thing, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for... Macedonia, just like he said he would do in 1 Corinthians 6-5. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. Where is uh, What is a prominent city we were just talking about that's in Greece? Corinth. Remember he said he was going to try to spend the winter with them? Here he says he spends three months in Greece, so that's probably a fulfillment of that plan, Paul spending the winter in Corinth. Uh, let's, Yeah, I'm just going to skip down to verse 4. Um Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, those went on ahead who were waiting in Troas. Who were all these guys listed in Acts 20, verse 4? These are the ambassadors. These are the people that Paul was asking Corinth uh t- to join. We have uh, we've got a Berean two Thessalonians, so those guys who represent the churches in the region of Macedonia. You got one guy from Derby representing the region of Galatia. We didn't talk about that region, but it's one, and two guys representing the churches in Asia, so around where Ephesus is from, but those guys aren't from Ephesus specifically. We have one region missing, the region of Achaia, where Corinth is located, so Paul told them to raise up these ambassadors, but by the time Acts 20 happens, which is after the writing of 1 Corinthians, Paul leaves Corinth without those ambassadors. He does bring one person with him. Gase of Derby and Timothy, which dovetails into verse 10 and 11. Read it with me. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way that he may return, or on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Pause there. Paul is sending his apprentice, Timothy, to go to Corinth. Why? Timothy is Paul's prodigy. He does the exact same kind of work as Paul. He's trained the exact same way, although they're very different kinds of people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul references that he's going to send Timothy to Corinth. And the implication is, I can't go right now, but I'm going to send you guys Timothy. He told the Corinthians, he said, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So I'm going to send Timothy over there. Because you're going to see a guy who's imitating me as I am Im- imitating Christ. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But you remember that because we studied that May twenty second, 2016. Um Paul is looking out for Timothy in Corinth. He says, don't show him a hard time. He's appealing to the better people in the Corinthian church. The more austere people in the church, the the rude, the rebellious, unsubmissive, insubordinate people in Corinth questioned Paul's authority. They questioned Paul's authority. Paul is an apostle. Paul has done all of these great things. Paul was very influential in the planting of the church in Corinth, and these people, some of the people in the church of Corinth, were pushing against Paul. So how much more would Timothy be possibly subject to that? Now, Timothy does the same work as Paul, but we know that his personality is very different. He's not bold. He's not snarky. He's not sarcastic like Paul. He's young, which connotes disrespect. He's, uh, he's got a very weak stomach. He's prone to anxiety. So Paul's saying, hey, guys, I'm going to send Timothy there and just make sure no one shows him a hard time. And then, like, like I said in Acts 20, we see that once Paul leaves Corinth after the winter, he brings Timothy with him. Verse 12, the last verse in our passage. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. We have another now concerning. We talked about this briefly at the very beginning of the sermon. Now concerning is in the realm of a technical term. Paul is moving on to another thing that they asked him. The First thing they asked him is how do we collect this this money? Well, the first thing in 1 Corinthians 16. How do we collect this money? He tells them how to do that. And he moves on to the next topic of their inquiry. They asked him, can you get Apollos to come back to us? Now, they loved Apollos in Corinth, and I got to tell you another narrative so you can understand why. Uh, I will try to make this brief, um, but it's not likely. <laughs> so this story about Apollos takes place before Ephesians 19, so before Paul gets to Ephesus the first time. Just to re- repass of that. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, going into his third year in Ephesus. But the Corinthians first met Apollos three years prior. Let's just round it off that. He got there before Paul did, okay? So this, this is kind of like Rogue One, right? It concerns separate characters. It's a prequel, but it kind of rubs shoulders. It's like Rogue One. So forgive the non-chronological telling of it, but use that as a timestamp. It's Rogue One. Um, despite the Greek sound of Apollos' name, He's a Jewish man, and he was born in Alexandria, which is a city in Egypt. Um, And he was a disciple of John the Baptist. And he was a young, budding, eloquent, influential, fervent preacher. He spoke with great authority, people were listening to him, and he actually did know something about Jesus. But maybe not quite enough. So he goes into the synagogue, he's a Jewish man. Remember he's a Jewish man. He goes into the synagogue and he starts telling them all these things about Jesus. but a Christian couple, dear friends of Paul, overhear the things that he's saying and they're like, yes, yes, oh yes, yes mm-mm, mm-mm, not that. And they're like, okay, uh, this guy's awesome. he's on fire for the Lord. He's clearly trained by John the Baptist. He knows a little bit about Jesus, but he's kind of got some stuff. Wrong. So they privately take him aside and they correct him, and with the same amount of fervor, he accepts their correction and then he continues going on. That couple was Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila were actually originally living in Rome but were kicked out because of persecution and moved to Corinth. These are members of the Corinthian church that just happen to be in Ephesus hearing this guy Apollos, and they bring him aside, and they correct him, and they form this friendship. So Apollos, this guy, this Jewish guy born in Egypt, (laughs) living in Asia Minor, preaching this, this Jewish Messiah, he forms a friendship with this couple from Rome, who then moved to Corinth, and he for some reason, probably just because they're so friends, so close friends, he says, I want to leave Ephesus now and go do work in Achaia. He says, wherever you guys are from, I want to see it. I want to do ministry there. So Priscilla and Aquila write him a letter of commendation. He goes to Achaia, and when he gets there, he's just slaying people in debates. He's going into the synagogues again, Jewish man. This is his gig. He goes into the synagogues, and he's proving, not preaching, proving that the scriptures say that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Messiah's prophecies are all fulfilled in Jesus's life, and, and there's nothing that the Jewish officials can say to him. He's also a great resource to the church in Corinth. He's taking care of the poor. He's helping them out, and it happened while Apollos was in Corinth. This is from Acts Chapter 19, it opens up with this verse. It happened while Paul, Apollos was in Corinth, slaying people in debates, helping out the needy. Paul passed through inland country and came to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. That's where we left off earlier. So, like ships crossing that night. I know this is confusing. Watch the fingers. Paul is, uh, he's, he's doing some ministry some other place. Uh, the, the couple Priscilla and Aquila go to Ephesus, and meet this guy, Apollos. They form a great friendship, and Apollos says, I want to go to Corinth. So he goes up to Corinth. Paul goes to Ephesus. Now, Paul's writing 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, and he's planning on going to Corinth. But by the time he wants to get there, Apollos is already gone. And the Corinthians love Apollos for all of these reasons. He's the debate slayer. He's the helper of the the poor. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1, especially in verse 12, a faction has formed under the name of Apollos. Remember, um, uh, people say, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Jesus. Apollos has this prominent place of authority in the Corinthian church. Let me repass that. A Jewish man, born in Egypt, learned about Jesus in Asia Minor, becomes one of the most influential teachers in a church in Greece. The gospel is bouncing around all over the place. It's crazy. And, um, but when, when Paul asked Apollos if he can go back to Corinth, he wasn't willing to do so. Uh, some people have conjecture that Apollos probably didn't want to go to Corinth because he knows they're forming these factions about me. I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to go over there and receive their praise. I've got better stuff to do. Plausible, but that's that is really just conjecture. It says here that it wasn't he wasn't willing to go. It wasn't a convenient time for him, but at some point he'll go back to Corinth. Okay. I know we talked a lot about stories, so let me repass over those events. Event number one: Priscilla and Aquila meet Apollos. They train him up in Ephesus. Two, Apollos goes to minister in Corinth. Three, Paul goes to Ephesus. From there, writes the book of 1 Corinthians. Five, or no, four, <laughs> forgetting my numbers. Uh, Paul sends Timothy to Corinth to be a representative of somebody who's made uh, their life imitators of Paul as Paul in, in, whew, imitates Christ. Five, Paul goes up to Macedonia. Six, Paul goes to Corinth and spends the winter there with the church and with Timothy. And seven, Paul goes to Macedonia with regional ambassadors taking Timothy with him. All of that narrative is tied up and referenced and led into and precursed by 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 12. We're going to skip over a lot of the stuff that transpire in Acts chapter 20, as, as we're kind of, you know, playing both sides of the field there. But suffice it to say, once we get to Acts 21— Acts 21 tells the story about Paul in Jerusalem. So Paul does end up taking this gift along with these ambassadors, along with Timothy, he does get to get to Jerusalem and deliver this gift. He's just trotted all over the globe, rubbing shoulders and influencing people from all over the globe. The gospel is exploding, it's permeating in the world. So we saw that the church is global in the sense that they engage in familial love for one another. They band together to create a relief for one of their churches somewhere else that is struggling. They send ambassadors, so you say, this is the face of your brothers and sisters in Macedonia. This is the face of your brothers and sisters in the region of Galatia. This is the face of your brothers and sisters in Asia Minor. We're here with you. We're one with you. We're here to help. We love you. We also saw that the church was global in the sense that there's this crazy interplay with multiple players jumping all over the map, doing crazy things, spanning cultural boundaries. We saw a guy like Apollos, who's a Jewish man, born in Egypt, doing work in Asia Minor, then going over to Greece and doing work there and becoming influential and doing great things. The gospel is not bound by boundaries of borders. The gospel transcends that. We cover players from Egypt, Italy, Judea, Greece, Asia Minor. There's evangelism happening, humanitarian relief happening, apologetics and debates happening. These things are happening in religious circles, secular circles, occultic circles. The gospel is turning the world upside down within less than 30 years after Jesus died and resurrected. Was not this journey through 1 Corinthians 16, that covers Acts 18 through 20, a fulfillment of the Great Commission that we read earlier. Remember, Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they Drink anything deadly will by no means hurt them. Actually, later on in Acts, Paul does pick up a snake that bites him. uh, And they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus foretold the crazy wonders that we see happen in the book of Acts. It was the expectation because Jesus had risen and all authority in all the world had been given to Jesus. And he says, this is what I want to do with it. The story of the cross lies in the solution of what the entire world needs. The entire world, every individual person, needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like our catechism this morning said, there is only one Redeemer, and if everybody needs to be redeemed, everybody needs to hear this good news. We all know John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believed in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There's one solution and an eternity of reward. And Jesus is bouncing his servants all over the map to make this available to every single person who's willing to believe. Have you ever stopped to wonder how an ancient Middle Eastern Semitic gospel reached your ears today? In the 21st century, in North America, and in English? How did that happen? There have been countless anonymous participants that have brought you this message today. Countless nameless evangelists, countless nameless missionaries, parents who raise godly households, teachers who teach Sunday school, Bible translators, bosses, people all over the world, through the centuries, have built heaps upon heaps upon heaps of testimony on which we stand today and for those who accept it, to our benefit. But there's still work to do. Now, the gospel's reached here to Seattle. This sermon and this gathering is evidence and testament to that, but there's still work to do because it hasn't reached everywhere, and it hasn't reached everybody in Seattle. There are those who have rejected, but there's people here who have not heard the genuine presentation of the gospel. So Christians, myself included, evangelize for goodness sake we have to evangelize this is the intention of Jesus Christ and you know what it's a it's a pretty stinking entertaining thing to join into joining in with Paul's team doing these amazing things joining in on Apollos' team and doing these amazing things I wonder if in eternity we're going to get to see the fully detailed chain link that links you to Mount Calvary that links me to Mount Calvary and I can't wait to know how many different people have worked together heaps upon heaps upon heaps of testimony upon which I stand today. Evangelize Christians. It's, it's going to be entertaining. It's going to be really exciting, like the stories we learned today. Also, I know it sounds like a cheap shot, but give financially to reputable organizations who do that very thing. It's scriptural. That's what Paul was first asking the Corinthian church just to do for Jerusalem. Relieve. Relieve. We're brothers somewhere else. I, I think it's in Second Corinthians eight fourteen. Paul talks about that he's not trying to burden the Corinthian church by taking money from them to to give to uh, to give to Jerusalem. He's trying to create equality. The, the church in Jerusalem was struggling, and they're brothers. They're equals, so he's trying to create equality. And he says, if, if Jerusalem was abounding and you were poor, I would take money from them and give it to you. Guys, there are our churches that are struggling financially. We're we should we're not going to take a, a specific collection today about that, but I would encourage you to in individually look up reputable organizations to do that. That's the message for Christians, for non-Christians, for, for people who have sat in the church for many years but maybe haven't been all game. You don't have to give. To churches you don't have to evangelize the story of jesus christ because you are not on the giving end of this story you are on the receiving end god has brought you here today and is telling you i've spoken whispers to whispers to whispers from person to person to person from slave to slave to authority to authority all throughout these centuries trans historically to reach you today my message is this in this cosmic trans historic game of telephone I'm here to tell you that I love you, that I forgive you, that I've died for you, that you don't have to strive anymore, that you don't have to compensate anymore, that you don't have to look for your place in this world anymore. Your place is with God as reconciled through Jesus Christ. That's the message for non believers simple, sweet, adoring, loving. That is the message that God has been working centuries and centuries, continentally, globe trotting, from person to person, transculturally, to bring to you. That sweet message of salvation, of love, of gracious love. Not just for the good people. Jesus wouldn't have died. He wouldn't have had to die if we, he was only for the good people. I want to finish the account of Mark 16 where we read that great commission. Verse 19 says, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he gave them that prophecy, he was received up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God and they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through accompanying signs. book of Mark ends with the word amen. Isn't that true? Okay, so we're, so we're done. I'm, I'm going to pray, but I, I also have to tell you guys: once we're done praying, if you have kids in children's ministry, get them right away because we have to have them all out before we build the photo booth. Sorry to break the spiritual cipher; that's important. Um, uh, I'm going to pray today, and in my closing prayer today, I, I too am going to read off of a list because I want to take some time to lift up some of the global connections we have in our midst today. Uh, we have familial links all across. Uh, the world in our church body, and so won't you join me as we pray blessings upon our brothers and sisters continuing the mission beyond our walls today. Um, I want to refer to the relationships uh, with the the Van Dorn family, Renee and Christy Van Dorn, who are going to Ethiopia this week for a week-long medical mission Rene's good friend, Pastor Andre, who's serving in Burkina Faso, that you would provide financial assistance and relief for him like you did for the church in Jerusalem. Pray for Renee's friends, Ram and Pushpa, who are serving in Nepal, who run a girl's home and are working on their translation of the New Testament um, from, protect them from the government's prohibition of people in their girls' home attending church. We pray strength and encouragement to Renee's friends overseas who are our brothers and sisters in your blood and under one father. We refer to Chris Rep's relationships. Chris Rep, who is our world missionary here at our church. We pray for her co-laborers in Africa and in the Middle East, the members of the diaspora who they've ministered to in Africa, who are hearing about their arrived Messiah, Jesus Christ, for the first time and are turning to him. We pray over those new converts that she speaks of who have fervency, have fervor, but they are undereducated in the things of the Lord. We pray like Apollos that you would... Bring faithful brethren to take them aside and give them worthy training. We pray for Chris's pastor friends in Cuba who weep because you've called them to a village where people hate them and hurl rocks at them, but they stay because you've called them there. And as Chris asked, we pray over the persecuted church that you would give them strength and stand firm and courage to press on, that you would be the defender and that you would convert their oppressors in your name. Referring to Kareem and Katie and, and Catherine who attend our church who recently settled here from Syria. Kareem's father, who's a believer, and, and Catherine's family are still in Syria. We pray over the healthy and enthusiastic churches who are still running today, but have had to shut down their events because of the dangers of the Civil War. We pray that you would restore their events, their worship workshops, their Gospel Holy Week parades through the streets. We pray for 1.6 million professing Christians that have today reduced down to 200,000 because of the war in Syria and have left. As Kareem asked, we pray that Christianity would not be extinct in Syria, but that the rich culture and heritage of Christianity would continue in the land where apostles actually walked in the first century. Hallelujah. And lastly, God, I just pray that here in Seattle that we would not be shy and bound by our introversion, but we would be bold to propagate the gospel that brings life no matter what the obstacle is because Jesus called us to that. It is the desire that Jesus has for this world. And we pray for our church that we would be unified with our brothers and sisters overseas because in John 17, that's the prayer that you prayed before going to the cross, that they would be one with each other as you, Jesus, and your Father are one. So we pray, we join in that, that you would fulfill that which is your will. Hallelujah. I thank you, Jesus, that the gospel transcends the world's boundaries and that the church is global because the Savior is global and universal. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.